Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Tweet us your questions at UCBS at Radio 702 at Cape Talk or even at Naked Scientists. Hello, Chris. Good morning, UCBS. We've got a wonderful science story this morning. It seems like the chemists at the University of Glasgow have been up to some interesting stuff. Yeah, indeed. The world needs better batteries. And if you cast your mind back to the 1980s, anyone who saw a mobile phone from the 1980s would think you were from another planet. These things weren't called bricks for no reason. They were huge. (laughs) And most of the size of the object was the battery compartment because we just weren't very good at packing huge amounts of energy into a small space. Luckily, things have got a lot better and modern-day devices use lithium-ion batteries which do have a much higher energy density and that means that we have been able to shrink our communications and other mobile devices down dramatically. But we're not there yet because many of the things we want to do like have electric vehicles, which are much better for the environment. They don't churn out lots of pollution. But also at the moment, they don't go very far because we can't pack enough energy into the battery technology we have to make them have the range that we need so people don't get what's called range anxiety. Scientists at Glasgow University, and this is Lee Cronin um, and his team, have got a paper in the journal Nature Chemistry this week where they have come up with an entirely new concept. They have a battery where actually you pump the charge like a liquid in the same way as you would fill your car with petrol or diesel you pump in a charged liquid this is called a flow battery and the way they do it is they have in the liquid which is just water an oxide of tungsten the same stuff that you have in the filament of old-fashioned light bulbs now what's special about this is they've arranged the tungsten oxide into tiny cages called nanoclusters and these cages can accommodate huge numbers of electrons they can pack into each cluster 18 electrons and this means that you can store a lot of charge you can put the charge in very quickly so the battery doesn't overheat and get damaged which is the other constraint on modern batteries but here's the amazing thing that lee told me At the moment, if we're driving around in electric cars and you go into the petrol station, you fill your car up and it takes you a few minutes and off you go. With an electric car, A, you've got to find a charging point, but it takes hours to charge the car up again. That's not practical. With their system, what you could do is drive your car into the garage, drain out the fluid which is in the battery, which is the now depleted fluid, and just fill it up with charge fluid. It takes literally seconds and you've got a whole full tank of electricity and off you go again and they reckon their present batteries that they're testing at the moment are about one and a half times better than the present generation of batteries we're putting in cars so actually already just the prototype is already about 50 percent better than what we already have and they're looking at technology that's the next stage beyond this which is going to be manifold better so a really dramatic story really impressive we're actually getting there at last Stunning. Absolutely love it. Lasejo, thank you so much for calling in. What question have you got for us? Morning, ECBS. Morning, Chris. Uh, I just want to find out why is it that if I press and hold the volume button on my decoder, if I press the volume button on the television, the one on the decoder stops working? 
Ah, well, I don't know exactly how they're talking to each other, but I suspect it's with infrared. And the way these devices work is that there is an infrared emitter in the front of the remote control, and it produces flashes of light at a certain frequency, which the device can see. You can't see it because your eyes are not sensitive to infrared, but the device is, and it picks up, decodes that sequence of flashes, and it then knows what you want it to do. And it may well be that either one of two things is happening. One is that the sequence of flashes that's the volume control for one device means something different to the other device or the two signals are interfering with each other because light has this feature called interference which is that light waves when they meet can actually add together and get brighter or dimmer according to whether they are traveling upwards or downwards at the same time or not and so there are a number of things that could be happening you you could be changing the light signals that are reaching the device or you're sending in a signal that means something different because it's just the sequence of flashes that it's been programmed to interpret. So it may well be that it's been programmed to reprogram itself when you send it the wrong signal. Either of those is a possibility. Hmm. Shane, thank you so much for calling in. Hello, Shane. Hello, how are you going? Love your program all the way from Australia. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. Thanks so much. What question have you got for Chris? Yeah, God bless you guys. Listen, um, I do behavioural science and I work with um, certain um, developmental areas of technology that are being exposed to Australians. And uh, there's great research now, especially I'll refer to a Dr. Martin Paul from Washington State University. And his studies have been extensive with electromagnetic frequency. And his findings have found that the voltage-gated calcium channels in the cell's membrane is actually being disrupted by the frequency of the mobile phone. I'm just wondering, I didn't get the scientist's name. What's his name? Chris? What is your question for him, Shane? Hello? Um, I was just wondering, is there any science to actually help um, counter that problem with the voltage-gated calcium channels in regards to the mobile phone frequency disrupting cellular growth, especially with children being exposed to it? Or do you think we need to regulate mobile phones better with um, children? Okay. Chris, did you get that? I did. And uh, thank you for calling in all the way from Australia. How wonderful. Um, I don't, you didn't say which bit of Australia you're from. Big country, wonderful country. One of my favourite countries after South Africa, of course. But good to have you on the programme. <laughs> Now, the question here is the safety of mobile phones. And at the moment, people are doing the world's biggest experiment that we've probably ever done because mobile devices outnumber people on the planet. And the number of people using them and notching up talk hours and communicating hours is absolutely huge. And we've been doing this for a number of decades now. And so what people are looking for when they look for an association between something that could could provoke something to happen and that thing happening is they look for what's called a dose dependent relationship so in other words we know what the dose is we know how much people are being exposed to this sort of radiation we know that from telephone records so we know how many conversations people are having and for how long so we know what people's dose is we also are making all kinds of health measurements and, and outcomes about people and so people are looking to see if um there are changes in health outcomes which change in step with the thing that they're being exposed to. That's the dose-dependent relationship because if something causes something to happen, if you increase the dose of something, you should see more of those outcomes. People are looking really hard and they haven't found any strong correlations yet between mobile phone exposure and health outcomes, things like cancers or other changes. That's not to say 
there aren't some that are going to happen because over a lifetime you're going to add up a bigger dose than in a short term. It may be we haven't looked for long enough. It may be that the variability and variation in people's exposure is too great to see a difference at the moment. But at the moment, based on tests in test tubes, tests in animals and tests in humans, there's no cause for concern but that doesn't mean we shouldn't stay vigilant and keep looking. And that's why research looking at possible influences of these sorts of radiations are important because we need to understand how they might be affecting us. Me personally, I think that uh, if you just use a mobile phone a little bit, you're probably not at great risk. I think the greater risk comes from changes to the way people think because these devices can lead to isolation they can lead to social isolation they can lead to fear of missing out they can make people depressed because everyone's comparing themselves to everyone else all the time and thinking everyone else is having a much better time than they are so i think that the dangers go beyond just the electromagnetic risk and i think that we are into a whole new era now with amazing availability of information but with that huge reward comes a cost and that's where we also need to not take our eye off the ball Thanks, Shane. Thanks for calling in from Australia. John, thank you so much for holding on. Hello? Go ahead, sir. We can hear you. What is your question? Uh, are you talking to me, to John? Yes, I'm talking to you, John. I got it, right. And the question is, why is it that women live longer than men? Is it a case that they, through their lifespan, they lose blood and like, their body is forced to make Okay, the line is not very clear, but the essence of the question, Chris, is, and I'm not sure whether the operating assumption is true, you'll tell us, why is it that women tend to live longer than men? Well, the statistics we have on populations bears that out, that women do, on average, live longer than men do. And there's a range of reasons why this might be true. Um, One of them is that women are relatively protected against big killers of humans until the age of the menopause. And in other words, when the oestrogen level is high, they have a lower risk of things like heart disease, high blood pressure, stroke. And as a result, since heart attacks account for about a third of all deaths, all mortalities, um, you're automatically straight away reducing the risk of these things now we don't know exactly why estrogen is so protective but we know that it has effects on cholesterol levels we know that it has effects on uh, high blood pressure and those things all have a risk bearing on your likelihood of developing heart disease and stroke so that's one protective thing straight away Um, there, there are also other ways that women's physiology differs from men so probably uh, metabolism oxidative stress and so on, those things also have a, have an effect. And we also think that perhaps we've selected over time for uh, women outliving men because men are most useful when they're young, they can reproduce, they can contribute their DNA, but women, the grandmother theory says that women's contribution to family and upbringing doesn't just end when a woman ceases to be a mother herself. They also have a strong bearing when there's a grandmother in the family as well. And men are less useful when they get old and clapped out, whereas women can have a strong nurturing effect and they can help to support families. And it might be that historically, because of the way that family units and, and people have evolved and so on over thousands of years, it might be that that's why we've also selected for women to stick around a bit longer than men. But that's just a more speculative than, than the hard science I, I've mentioned about oestrogen and the menopause and heart disease risk. Paul, welcome to the show. What is your question? Yeah, hi. Hi, Chris. Hi, um, Okay, my question is this. When you take a pure float glass, <clears throat> to toughen it, it is put through a furnace. 
But prior to this process, you need to, if you need holes or you need notches made, you need to do it before it's fired. So anyway, recently I ordered a eight millimeter shower, piece of shower glass, just one panel, and I requested eight millimeter holes in the panel to take a towel rail. I was told I can have six millimeter or I can have 10 millimeter, but I can't have eight millimeter because the diameter of the hole can't be the same size as the thickness of the glass as it tends to shatter in the furnace. They don't know why. I don't know why, and I wonder whether Chris knows why. <laughs> what a lovely question. Chris. That's an amazing question. I'll tell you what I'm going to do, Paul. I'm going to, going to take that to my materials science colleagues because that's, that sounds like a wonderful conundrum that they would love to get their head mm. around. And uh, I don't want to give a hand-wavy answer because there must be some really important reason for this. It might be a bit like the spaghetti question. Have you ever tried to, to break a bit of spaghetti? If you hold a bit of spaghetti, uh, one end in each hand, and you snap it and so it would bend in the middle and break, you say to people, how many bits of spaghetti will I get? Well, the answer is you will get more than three, or at least three. It never breaks into two. It breaks into at least three or more bits. Is that so? It is. Oh, well. You can try the experiment yourself. And actually, it took someone with a fast camera and, and a big mind to work out why. And the reason is that when you bend the spaghetti, actually, you're putting it under tension, and you then get a weak point, which breaks the spaghetti. But because the spaghetti was under tension, it then springs back in the opposite direction, then bending the remaining bits back on themselves in the same way that you bent the first bit that broke it. So then the next bit, because it's bending the wrong way too much, breaks itself. And that's why you then get three or four bits of spaghetti showering off. Have a go, everyone. Obviously not cooked spaghetti. It won't work with that. You've got to do it with the hard, stiff stuff. But have a go and, uh, and, and see if I'm right. Okay, Paul. I think that's one of the more interesting questions we've had in months. We'll replay Abel, Paul's call next week, and um, and then Chris can tell us what he found from his colleagues. Well, shall we do that, Chris? We'll do that. I'll get on to them this very morning, straight after we finish the programme, um, my, my friends at uh, Material Science at the University of Cambridge, and we'll see what they come up with. Um, and just in case they're all on holiday, because they do occasionally take a break, um, I'll warn you in <laughs> advance that, that we've got the answer, and we will definitely return to this, because it's a fascinating question. Okay. Michael in Benoni, good morning to you. Hi, morning, CBS and morning, Chris. Uh, I just wanted to find to know how do uh, birds that fly in a group keep their uh, synchronized uh, flight pattern uh, logged, even if when they are disturbed or even if when they make quick and sharp turns. They're still on a synchronized flight pattern. Okay. I've got deja vu. Has this question come up before? Um, this, this one hasn't, but we have talked about things with people sort of doing things in sync together before. And this is another yeah. example of synchronization. If you think about armies marching, people walking hand in hand and talking, birds flying together, um, it, it is something that you see across the animal kingdom. And timing is everything we use timing in many aspects of our lives when we're talking that's timing when we're walking that's timing when we're walking up and down stairs that's timing so there are circuits in our brains that enable us to do this um birds have very good visual systems and they are also social animals that hang around in groups together so they have evolved to use their sense of each other their sense of space around themselves 
and their visual system, and they integrate all this information, and that's how they can maintain their position relative to the flock. Because at the end of the day, if they get it wrong, they're going to have a crash, aren't they? Either against another bird or against a, a third object, or they're going to plummet out of the sky. Mm. So they've evolved to do this. Is the simple get-out-of-jail-free answer to this. But the way they're doing it is they, they have, these animals have very well-developed bits of the brain that are concerned with movement and also integrating vision with movement. It's in their cerebellum. That's the part at the back of the brain. And they have evolved to do that because it uh, makes such a difference to them being successful. <laughs> okay, let's take one from Twitter for a change. Elna van Nikerk tweets the following, Chris. On road, sometimes loose stones are flung from a vehicle in front into your windscreen. A few times this has happened when the car passed from the opposite side. And here's the question for Chris Eusebius. Can a stone be flung from the car like a bullet? Or is it flung up in the air and you happen to drive into it? Yes, um, it, it's absolutely true that the, the car that goes over a stone, the wheels are turning. Usually what happens is the stone temporarily lodges in the tread of the tyre. So it's gripped by the tyre a bit. And then as the tyre turns round and the stone is now free of the road surface, it's got enormous amount of momentum because it's been accelerated by the tyre going over it, which means the tyre is flung upwards in the air because the tyre is turning, so the stone is lifted, but it's also possibly got some propulsion back in the opposite direction because the wheel was turning. So the stone has been accelerated in two directions. It's been, it's been accelerated in a circle, but that means when you hit it, it's basically travelling upwards, but it's also got a, an element of movement back towards you you are then driving into it so you've got some velocity towards it as well so actually the combined speed of impact can be even higher the car on the opposite side of the road usually it'll have lifted the stone up in the air and then you go smacking into it because relative to you it's coming towards you because you're driving towards it hmm. tracy thank you so much for calling in today what question have you got for us hello tracy hello. hi there hi Hi, Chris. I wonder if you can explain something to me. Um, could you explain the difference in color between the post-cremated ashes of my two parents? Um, my one parent died 15 years ago in one place. His ashes are white. My mother passed away five years ago in another city, and her ashes are dark gray. Is this variation explicable, or should I treat either one with suspicion? Thank well, you. Um Hello, and very interesting question. I've never been asked that. Although one person did ask me a few years back, um, they, they said, could they turn cremated ashes into a pot plant because they wanted to, to make pots and then plant flowers in them, um, which I thought was an interesting <laughs> idea. Um, the answer is the way that you cremate people, um, the techniques can vary, but you're using very high temperature, which reduces the body to the, just the bits that won't burn. And the composition of the body is mostly water. So you get rid of all the water with the high temperature. And then the tissue that's left is proteins and minerals. And so the ash that's left behind is the minerals that, have, that you, you basically can't burn off. Now, it will vary a little bit between individuals because the composition and size of a person is going to be different. So what's in their body is going to differ a bit between people. The temperature at which the furnace is operated is going to differ a bit between the individuals. And also the casket that they're in, because some people have different coffins and some people have sort of cardboard coffins or wickerwork coffins. Some people have wooden coffins. Those will all make a difference because all that stuff ends up as part of the ash that you then scatter. So I strongly suspect that this is not some nefarious 
best practice, it probably reflects the fact that you've got two different individuals of different sizes which were cremated maybe in different techniques or at slightly different temperatures in slightly different sort of dressings and caskets and all that kind of thing is going to make a difference to what you get back at the end of the day. Okay, we can squeeze in a final question. You've been waiting very patiently, Seth. Thank you so much for that. What question do you have for Chris? Hi, Chris. Uh, hi, Sigurd. Um, I would like to find out what the purpose of a sneeze is. Um, it seems to be fairly pre- pleasurable before you sneeze, but, and once you sneeze, what, what happens to the body? Does it, or is it, is it, is it a, a helpful thing to sneeze? Hi, Seth. <laughs> you can look upon this two ways, really, because for the people that catch the bugs that you sneeze out, it's not helpful. For the people that sneeze, it's very helpful. And the reason we sneeze, it's caused by irritation to your airways. Your airways are lined with very sensitive nerve cells and they can be stimulated either chemically, so inflammation in your airways or damage to the airway linings because of chemicals or because of damage from, say, a virus growing there and inflammation will trigger these nerves. Or if you stimulate the hairs that line, especially the outer part of your nose, they are also wired up to the nervous system and will make you want to sneeze. The purpose of a sneeze is to expel the cause of the irritant. And the body doesn't care what the irritant is, whether it's a physical thing, a chemical thing or a virological thing. It just wants it out. And by triggering the sneeze reflex, which is where enough stimulus of the nerve cells goes to a part of the brain called the brain stem and those signals are added together and when they reach a threshold it then triggers your uh, reflex system which is a sudden expulsion of air against initially you, you close off your vocal cords you build very high pressure in your chest and then you release it all at once either from your mouth or down your nose or both and it hopefully expels whatever the obstruction is and we've actually done experiments on the naked scientist you can go to our website nakedscientist.com and have a look at this and um, we filmed a guy from the team sneezing we made him sneeze by feeding him pepper and uh, we filmed the sneeze on a high high speed camera and uh, we took 300 frames a second and filmed how fast the snot took to travel across a distance marker against a dark wall. And we took all the footage off the camera, so we had all these images at 300 frames a second. So I I joked and said that was sneeze frame photography. And you can actually calculate, it's about 100 kilometres to 160 kilometres an hour that the air rushes out at. And the other interesting thing is that one stimulus for sneezing that I didn't mention is bright light because there is another kind of sneezing called the photic sneeze reflex, which is if you look at bright light, about one person in five will find that very bright light that they're unaccustomed to, so sudden exposure to unaccustomed bright light, will trigger a sneezing fit, and that's called the photic sneeze reflex. Scientists don't know exactly why it happens, but we do think it runs in families. Have a beautiful weekend. Thank you, Chris. I'm looking forward to the weekend. See you soon.